Welcome to Talking Biotech, the podcast dedicated to exploring the latest advancements in biotechnology, sponsored by Calabra, the R&D software that accelerates scientific discovery with AI. Each week, we'll dive into the latest innovations and discoveries with industry leaders and pioneers. Now, here's your host, Dr. Kevin Fulta. And if you dig into this, this thing reads just like a soap opera, and it's just bizarre that so much of our future of this amazing one-in-a-hundred-year chemical is based on, on this deplorable monogram. Welcome to the Talking Biotech Podcast. It's the weekly podcast about agriculture and medicine with an emphasis on biotechnology and turns out associated products um, that can help people and the planet. My name is Kevin Fulton. Today we're going to talk about a report that came out recently about the chemical glyphosate, particularly in its use in Ontario. And the purpose of today's talk isn't to with glyphosate so much in the news. The purpose of today's talk is to really talk about what do the data really tell us and what do the actual reports say? And to help us with that is Rob Syke. And many of you know Rob. Um, Rob is a CEO from Psych Management Group. He's the executive director of No Ideas Media, which K-N-O-W, as in knowledge. He's the founder of Agritrend and the Agritrend group of companies that now are part of Trimble. And um, he's a professional agrologist, certified ag consultant, and uh, has lots of experience in Canadian agriculture. Uh, welcome to the podcast, Rob. It's really good to be with you today, Kevin. It's, uh, it's an honor to be on the podcast and a great opportunity to talk about uh, this report. And I'm really glad that you were able to do this. And I appreciate it because I've always enjoyed every t time we get to talk. Uh, it's always been really productive and I've really enjoyed that. So can you tell me a little bit about where this report came from? So who are the co who's the co-author and um, what was the genesis of deciding to compile this information? Well, the report is, uh, has been generated based on herbicide use in the province of Ontario. Um, one of my colleagues is uh, uh, Chris Dufault. And Chris Dufault is a former uh, regulatory evaluator and use analysis with the PMRA, which stands the Pesticide Management Regulatory Agency in Canada. He concluded his career with them in 2012. Uh, and since then, he's been involved with Agritrend as a senior coach. And a lot of the credit to this goes to Chris. Chris made me aware of this study that was going on in Ontario uh, going back to 1983. And this data has been compiled by the Ontario government in a systematic fashion every five years. And so when Chris made me aware of this ongoing project with uh, herbicide tracking in Ontario, I said that we desperately needed to compile this into a report, which uh, we finally did. Uh, the data is kind of hard to get. It takes them a while to assemble the data. So it takes the uh, Ontario agricultural officials quite a while to assemble the data. And then it's really kind of buried in on their website. Uh, we've got all the references, of course, uh, attached to the report, but uh, we just released the report this week. So the report, Kevin, covers the period of 1983 to 2013 and a lot of credit to Chris Dufault for pulling together a lot of the stats. 
No, that's really great. And can you tell us a little bit about Ontario? You know, what is the climate like there in terms of herbicide use? Is it one of these places like the rest of Canada that's had a good dose of Suzuki and really is uh, putting rather draconian limits on what can be used? Yeah, Ontario is uh, is a, uh, a province that would mirror a lot of the uh, growing conditions in the Corn Belt in the United States. Uh, so corn and soybeans, we'll talk about the acreage increase over time in Ontario. Uh, but corn and soybeans is a big, uh, what they call cash crop in the province of Ontario. In Western Canada, where I live, uh, we also grow corn and soybeans. Soybeans a lot in Manitoba and corn there. But our predominant crops, of course, are uh, wheat and canola, barley, flax, that sort of thing. So Ontario is really good data, Kevin, for uh, comparing uh, practices with uh, the United States farmers. Because, again, Ontario agriculture mirrors uh, the Iowa, Illinois, and Indiana area very, very closely. Yeah, so how and how does uh, what happens in Ontario with respect to this particular chemical, how um, transferable are those data either to other places in Canada? You, you just mentioned, you know, the Corn Belt in the U.S., but um, are the data consistent with other things they've seen in terms of, uh, say, the National Academies reports and, and other reports seem to be pretty much in line? or are, Well, are again, I, I, I believe they are, Kevin. I mean, the, uh, you know, if you take one herbicide, which we all know uh, very well, which is atrazine and atrazine used in corn, doesn't matter whether you're on in, in Ontario or Minnesota or Iowa, atrazine was a herbicide that was heavily used in corn production. And so consequently, with the advent of genetic engineering technology and herbicide-tolerant crops, they've been able to shift over to glyphosate instead of uh, atrazine, and that's reflected actually in the Ontario data. So I think the answer is yes. I think that uh, uh, you could um, um, anecdotally uh, take uh, the information across the line, and I think that if you dug into the data, it would mirror quite nicely. Well, let's uh, start thinking about some of the numbers because critics of uh, the chemistry will say, well, look at how the use has skyrocketed since 1996, huge amounts of it used. And what is the best way to think about the, because the fact that there are more kilograms sprayed now than there were back then. And, and how do we think about that? Well, there's more kilograms of glyphosate sprayed. And, and I think that, uh, even, you know, one of the organic advocates, Benbrook, talks about the fact that there's more glyphosate used since genetic engineered crops come into existence. And I would agree with that. I mean, that makes sense. What is hardly ever talked about is what herbicides have been displaced because we're able to use glyphosate. And, and why do farmers use glyphosate? Well, because by and large, glyphosate works very, very well. And so this report really talks about that. It talks about the fact that uh, other herbicides have been displaced in favor of glyphosate. And, uh, and that would, again, mirror uh, the data in the United States. But how have the adoption of these herbicide tolerance strategies, how have they affected either, say, costs on the farm, the ability to farm, or maybe yields? How, how have those paralleled? Well, if we go to the report and we start to have a look at some of the data sets and, and the data sets, uh, again, uh, go back to 1983, 
2013. Um, it shows here that the total amount of herbicide, uh, total herbicide, and this is the total herbicide used in Ontario on corn production declined by 39%. And in the same period, corn yield has increased by 74%. So let me repeat that. Um, total herbicide use declined by 39%. Total corn yield in the 30-year period went up by 74%. And of course, um, glyphosate went from 1% utilization in corn production up to 54% utilization in corn production. But I think the, the most telling uh, piece of data, Kevin, in this report refers to the active ingredient per 10,000 bushels, or let's just call it the active ingredient per bushel. How much active herbicide is put on the land uh, to control weeds over that 30-year period? And the data uh, shows a dramatic drop from uh, over 200 kilograms of active ingredient per 10,000 bushels down to something like 65 kilograms per 10,000 bushels. So we see such a dramatic drop in the active ingredient per bushel or per 10,000 bushels as in the report. It's just a stark and, a, and, a, and an amazing successful number. So in spite of increased acreage of corn, Total number uh, of herbicide active pounds of ingredient on the ground have declined. Uh, glyphosate has increased. Corn, uh, because we're using more glyphosate, but it's offsetting a lot of other chemistry. And in that whole period, uh, corn yields have increased dramatically while the active ingredient load on the land has dramatically decreased. Yeah, I mean, we should be a little bit careful because you know, the, at the same time as you're seeing the herbicide traits, herbicide tolerant traits being adopted and this yield increasing, how much of that yield has nothing to do with the herbicide, but just as because of improved management practices and better genetics otherwise? Well, exactly, Kevin. Uh, I mean, uh, it's because of our ability to utilize glyphosate and herbicide tolerant crops uh, that we've been able to reduce tillage. So, uh, your comment is on the mark. Glyphosate per se by itself does not increase yields. However, the corresponding practices that a farmer is able to uh, to adopt because of the utilization of glyphosate would include uh, a dramatic shift to a reduced or no till, minimum till, or or a dramatic reduction in cultivation. Well, a reduction in cultivation means. Uh, less greenhouse gases are being uh, sent into the air through the decomposition of soil organic matter. Uh, less cultivation means that the soil tilth or the soil health goes way up. And correspondingly, uh, water use efficiency or water holding capacity of the soil also goes up. So uh, contrast that to the day of you know, pre-emergent uh, pesticides where we had to spray the pesticide in the ground and then work it in or incorporate those pesticides with uh, uh, glyphosate uh, and glufosinate also, we were able to plant the crop and we don't need to till. So that practice 
um, while not directly related to glyphosate, glyphosate enabled a whole bunch of attributes to fall out that increase yield. Yeah, it also comes to mind that at least in corn, you're probably also seeing effects on yield from stacked insect-resistant traits. Well, that's a that's a part of the story that was not tracked in the data, and and it always amazes me how uh, the uh, anti-GMO activists conflate glyphosate with with GMOs, and of course, it's an easy target because herbicide-tolerant crops were the first things to come on the marketplace. So they equate naturally GMO to more chemical use. And this report says, well, that's not true. Uh, They also ignore, conveniently ignore, uh, BT or Bacillus thuringiensis, which is the integration of insecticide resistance into uh, corn, soybeans, and cotton. And of course, the corresponding result in insecticide or indiscriminate insecticide sprays on 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 farmland has gone down precipitously because of bt uh, integration into these crops so when you consider and if you could get the numbers on on what it would mean uh, glyphosate uh, in terms of active ingredient of herbicide reduction and then over top of that lay uh, the reduction of active ingredient of insecticides sprayed sprayed on the crop because BT displaces those insecticide spray, the story would be, uh, it is amazing. And we're talking with Rob Syke. He's the CEO of Syke Management Group um, and dozen other things here, Father of uh, founder of AgriTrend. Uh, and you know that Nick Syke guy too, right? I know that Nick Syke. I'm very proud of my son uh, who works uh, very hard with his team at No Ideas as KNOW, No Ideas Media. And every every Friday, we put out a new video uh, uh, about agriculture and agricultural science. And uh, this Friday, which would be the 31st of August, we're going to put a video out about this very paper uh, so you could link to it. So No Ideas Media will have uh, a uh, video that deals with the good news about glyphosate, according to the data from the Ontario government. Yeah, and and, uh, we'll have a break here, and Nick will talk about where you can find that stuff. The other question might be, where can people download your report? If the folks uh, were interested in a a copy of the report, they can get it online at robertsyke.com. That's robertsaik.com, and go into social media where you'll find my blog. Uh, also, if they enter in uh, their email address, we'd be happy to send them a really nice uh, PDF copy of this report, which they could share. And uh, all I do is that they ask, all I ask is that they would credit uh, Chris Dufault and myself with the uh, compilation of the report and, uh, and Ontario government with the data. Very good. So we're with the Talking Biotech podcast. We're going to take a break here. Go download the report so you can follow along in part two of the podcast. This is the Talking Biotech podcast. Thank you for listening. We'll be right back. Hey, everyone. This is Nick Syke from No Ideas Media. If you listen to this podcast, you're probably an awesome person who's probably found themselves in a debate or two about the validity of genetic engineering and its use in food production. You may have even noticed the same problem I've been picking up on. There's lots of good information out there about genetic engineering, but very few people who need to see it are exposed to it. Well, I'm making videos that lay people like myself can actually understand and digest. 
I'm a filmmaker, so this is my contribution to science communication. They are the perfect thing to post on the wall of that friend you have. You know, that person who just can't seem to grasp the awesomeness of GE crops, who maybe gets hung up on things like chemicals or Monsanto or whatever. The videos I make cover a wide variety of topics, and you can watch them by searching No Ideas Media, remember that's no as in knowledge, on Facebook or YouTube. The videos will likely cover what you already know, but the point is, we gotta share them with people who don't know. The mission at No Ideas Media is to be pragmatic, not dramatic. So help us spread the right information about genetic engineering. Thanks a lot. And we're back on the Talking Biotech podcast. Today we're talking with Rob Syke. And Rob, many of you know, he's the founder of AgriTrend and the AgriTrend family of companies. He's a professional agrologist and a certified ag consultant, among many hats that he wears. And we're talking about a report that recently released uh, with by Rob and Chris Dufault called Some Good News About Glyphosate. And uh, this is a really in stark contrast to the doom and gloom stories that we typically see on websites and in the media and really reflects um, government measurement and what governments have identified uh, in terms of their agricultural trends. And if there's a guy who knows agri-trends, right? Yeah. <laughs> Uh, so, so Rob, we talked about corn before. What what happens with soybeans in Ontario? Well, again, the Ontario government data goes back to 1983, Kevin, and we've got the data from 1983 to 2013. And in that period of time, uh, the acreage of soybeans grown in Ontario increased by 188%. So the acreage almost doubled of soybeans in that uh, in that period of time. And the amount of herbicide only increased by 47%. So you've got 188% increase in, uh, in uh, Ontario uh, soybean acres, uh, only a 47% increase in herbicide use. And uh, at the same time, the increase in yield of uh, soybeans was 53%. So you've got a great story here. You've got uh, almost a doubling of acreage. You've got an increase of yield by 53%. And correspondingly, in that whole period of time, total herbicide use just increased by 47%. But that's not the end of the story because the story gets much better after that. Uh, again, in the report, it talks about the a herbicide load uh, per thousand bushels, in this case with, with soybeans. And active ingredient has gone down from almost 50 uh, kilograms per uh, thousand bushels of active ingredient down to something like around 15. So the total uh, environmental load, while the acreage was increasing and while the yield was increasing, the total environmental load uh, on soybean acres in Ontario dropped dramatically, almost by three times. And that's because, of course, glyphosate replaced some of the other products that were being used uh, in Ontario agriculture. Yeah, so that's really what it boils down to is you have a doubling in yield, but less active ingredients. So not, not a doubling of active ingredient. And it probably is because you're using glyphosate, but losing something else that you're applying a lot more active ingredient. And that's probably the mechanism for that particular set of numbers. So you're using something where you're applying fewer kilograms to get the same result, basically. So well, for what sure. else do we, 
Yeah, but what else do we know about the relative impact of glyphosate on the environment relative to the others it replaced? Well, again, uh, you know, uh, this is why I, I just get so upset when I hear reports uh, by the environmental working group uh, who just, uh, just get they get wound up in the media and stuff, but they never, ever talk about what glyphosate replaced. Uh, and, and glyphosate has and continues to replace a lot of chemistry that has a lot higher environmental impact. So one of the things that uh, uh, the report looked at is the environmental impact. In other words, uh, if you're using glyphosate, what did it displace? And so in the report, uh, a couple of uh, herbicides that we looked at was glyphosate versus atrazine and metalachlor and S-metalachlor, which is uh, two herbicides that it replaced. And in the report, it talks about the, the fact that uh, the environmental impact of glyphosate is kind of below six, uh, which is the environmental impact per acre. And that compares to environmental impact of just less than 14 and 14 for atrazine and metalachlor. So these uh, two herbicides, which were previously used in corn and soybean production, are being offset by an increased use of glyphosate, but that increased use of glyphosate means that the environmental impact is way down on the acres on which it's being used. Yeah, so just to kind of drill down on that a little bit, it's kind of like um, uh, saying, when you talk about environmental impact quotient, you're talking about the relative effect of the compounds and the chemistries on collateral effects, things like water and, and insect or insects or whatever, where atrazine and others do have some uh, potential environmental impacts that you have to be very sensitive to. Uh, glyphosate, not so much. Well, exactly. We talked here in the report about environmental impact, also environmental impact quotient. Environmental impact quotient also looks at the things that you were talking about, which is uh, looking at 12 different data points from, from a safety uh, standpoint, a safety and a toxicology standpoint, which would include like short and long-term toxicity of laboratory animals, half-life of, of the product, whether the product is systemic, whether the product uh, leaches in groundwater, wh wh whether the product is toxic to non-specific or non-target animals, etc. And again, uh, the story here in the report is amazing because the environmental impact quotient uh, for glyphosate is 15.3 versus uh, 22.9 and 22 for atrazine and metoachlor. So it really, again, uh, shows the, the safety of that switch in herbicide regime. And really that whole recent switch has been backed up very well by the Canadian government because they just did an evaluation in 2017. Is that correct? Every uh, five years, uh, the, the Ontario government's been doing this study on, on herbicide use. But correct, in 2017, the Canadian Pesticide Regulatory Agency just did a re-evaluation re of glyphosate and concluded that it was unlikely to pose a human risk. And that was released on April the 28th of 2017. And I'll include a link to that report as well as to this report um, online. So when you talk about what the Canadian government found, I, I read the report and it was rather mundane. There wasn't many smoking guns inside that, uh, inside that report at all. 
And contrasts versus what people are talking about online and on websites, uh, the Canadian report was very much in line with what has been seen by probably uh, two dozen other regulatory bodies uh, worldwide. But how does it contrast versus what, uh, say, the IARC has been putting out? Well, this is really one of the things that's got uh, us all in agriculture uh, very confused and, and quite upset. I mean, again, the Canadian uh, Pesticide Management Regulatory Agency just uh, approved the safety of uh, glyphosate in 2017. So did the European Chemical Agency. So did uh, the U.S. Environmental Protection Agency. And so you contract that, contrast that with the... Uh, uh, IARC or the uh, um, uh, International Agency on Research and Cancer that qualified uh, uh, glyphosate as a probable carcinogen. And that I- IARC is an absolutely outlier report. It goes against almost every single scientific report uh, that we know of that was done a deep scientific report. And the parts that upset uh, me so much as a layperson studying that IARC uh, debacle is number one. Uh, the chairman knew of a 1,200 or so page study that was just completed on 50,000 farmers and custom applicators that showed no linkage between glyphosate and cancer, and that chairman withhold that withheld that information from IARC. Another member of the IARC panel was in a conflict of interest being paid 160,000 US dollars to appear as a glyphosate and anti-glyphosate witness while serving on the IARC panel and perhaps the most egregious thing was uncovered by Reuters news agency that showed that there are 10 places in the final documentation between the draft and the final documentation there's 10 places where the sentences were essentially changed 180 degree to go from a glyphosate is basically not a problem to glyphosate is a problem. And all of the issues that we're facing today in the EU and the recent court ruling in California and all the ups, uh, subsequent or upcoming uh, issues with glyphosate are all stemming around this IARC ruling. And if you dig into this, this thing reads just like a soap opera. And it's just bizarre that so much of our future of this amazing one in a hundred year chemical is based on on this deplorable monogram. Yeah, it's pretty amazing that something can be such a stark departure from the literature and from other regulatory, independent regulatory assessments and still be given so much credence and so much weight. And the funny part is, is that it doesn't say we identify this as a carcinogen based on um, on research that we've done. They say, based upon reading the stuff that's out there, we've determined this might be a problem. It has a, uh, it's identified as a hazard, as a, a probable carcinogen in occupational exposure. But how does that really dovetail with the idea of risk? How do we put that all together? Well, it, I mean, uh, y- the amount of uh, glyphosate that you would have to ingest to have an acute uh, toxicity reaction, keeping in mind that glyphosate's acute toxicity is way lower than aspirin, caffeine, or even table salt, you'd have to ingest a whole bunch of it, to like lots of it, you, uh, before you'd ever get yourself in trouble. You'd have to go out of your way. Uh, and so the uh, IARC ruling just takes into account hazard, but it takes, doesn't take into account risk. And of course, 
risk is the amount of exposure that you would potentially have. And again, given the low nature of its uh, acute and chronic uh, toxicology, which is very, very benign, um, the, the ruling just seems to fly in the face of that. And by the way, we should make the listeners aware that the IARC also has classified coffee or caffeine as a probable carcinogen and bacon and cured meat and all kinds of stuff. Uh, again, um, I, I don't know of a monogram that they have uh, that they've worked on that isn't classified as a carcinogen. Yeah, um, night shift work and working in a hair salon and pickled vegetables <laughs> and barbecue. <laughs> right. Yeah, that's right. Well, all the things that make carcinogenic. Well, all the things that make life sweet, you know. And but we. Um, you know, can can kind of laugh about that, and and you know the the evaluation that happens because of IARC, but it really has taken a toehold because of the uh, propaganda around it, and because of the misinformation that was really has a root in the IARC authority. But how would it affect Canada if Canadian farmers were to lose this tool? Well, I I didn't know that question was coming. Um, the effect on Canadian agriculture uh, would be nothing short of, of profound and profoundly negative. Uh, in Western Canada, we grow our crops on uh, broad acre arable agriculture. And for the most part, we uh, suffer from lack of moisture, lack of rainfall. This year, again, a big chunk of Western Canada was very, very dry. Um, Eastern Canada was as well. So if you take away uh, glyphosate, then you take away our ability to maintain a, a, a minimum or a zero tillage scenario. We go back to tilling. We go back to utilizing pre-emergent herbicides, or we go back to spraying on many types of uh, herbicides to control weeds that would have a lot higher environmental impact than glyphosate does uh, I think that the removal of glyphosate from Western Canadian agriculture uh, would be absolutely devastating. And the same could be said of uh, a lot of farms in the U.S. and Brazil and Argentina as well. I mean, Argentina as a shining example of uh, farmers taking and just running and adopting a zero tillage. They, they're leaders on the planet. You couldn't do that without glyphosate and, and the benefits accrued to herbicide tolerant crops. So if I'm a concerned consumer and I'm reading the websites and I'm, I'm, I'm worried about what I'm seeing on TV, how should I think about these things? Well, I, I really feel sorry for uh, consumers and uh, uh, I apologize on behalf of agriculture because I don't think we've done a very good job of sticking up for the science inside of agriculture, letting groups like the Environmental Working Group, which is a, a front for the Organic Trade Consumers Association, run away with the, the dialogue is, is not serving uh, consumers. So I would just ask uh, before you uh, start just uh, thinking and ingesting uh, the data or the information from these environmental uh, groups, uh, these advocacy groups, that you would ask the question, what do they, uh, what is their purpose? Uh, often their purpose is to sell fear. Uh, that fear sells membership. Membership drives their cause. Uh, their cause is largely to drive up food prices by selling you fear, selling you food into that fear so that you'd pay a higher price for the food when you don't need to. Uh, our regulatory agencies in Canada, the U.S. and around the world, uh, these are smart people and, and they do uh, good work. And farmers out there 
hit the field every year with the intention of growing safe and reliable and and uh, and sustainable food for consumers. And uh, I would ask that consumers just pause a little bit, and if they have a question about uh, about what's going on in agriculture, ask uh, ask a farmer, ask me, ask you. Go to No Ideas Media on Facebook or YouTube and do some research, or Genetic Literacy Project, or just go and ask somebody who's in the business. Uh, and get a counterpoint to the rhetoric you're seeing on social media. Yeah, and the No Ideas website is a great place to start. And I'm not just saying that because I'm talking to you, Rob. I think that, uh, you know, we've kind of watched No Ideas and Nick's uh, um, enterprise here kind of ebb and flow in different ways and kind of take different directions. And it kind of sat right in a really good saddle now. And it's found itself, it's found its audience, it's found a really good, comfortable format. And I love what he does. I, I could watch those all day. So check out No Ideas and No Ideas Media. Um, and uh, it's at that's at uh, no. Uh, what website is that? Look, what's the URL of the website? Yeah, the website is uh, uh, know no gmo dot ca, and then No Ideas uh, with an S. No Ideas Media on Facebook and YouTube. Yeah, it's K N O W ideas. <laughs> I don't know what you get if you go to no ideas and no ideas. <laughs> I have no idea. <laughs> um, yeah, there you go. Well, Rob, thank you very much for spending the time with me today. Say hi to everybody up there in Canada for me. Hey, all of Canada. Yeah. 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 <laughs> thank, thank you very much. Well, the unfortunate part is the only time we bring you up here is minus 30 degrees. But anyways, we love uh, That's you. right. Thank you very much for your time. I really appreciate it. Thank you so much. And thank you for listening to the Talking Biotech Podcast. Write reviews, uh, tell a friend, share the stories of agriculture, and be very thankful for all the food we have, as well as the people who are willing to produce it. Give them and ensure the tools that they need to continue to do that. I'm Kevin Fulta. Thank you very much for listening, and we'll talk to you again next week. Thank you for listening to the Talking Biotech Podcast. Send your suggestions for guests, comments, or questions to TalkingBiotech at gmail.com. Please write a review of this podcast on iTunes and recommend it to a friend. More downloads help us reach a wider audience with science. You've been listening to Talking Biotech, sponsored by Calabra, the platform that bridges the gap between siloed research tools. With Calabra's Electronic Lab Notebook, scientists can work together in real time, sharing data and insights with ease. Revolutionize your research collaboration. Sign up for a demo today at calabra.app, C-O-L-A-B-R-A dot A-P-P.